0: Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's episode includes some thematic material. I want you to be aware before you listen in the presence of little ears. The principles of honesty and integrity that Sam Lehman founded his business on continue today over 55 years later at Sam Lehman Chevrolet Buick in Eureka. Owned and operated by the Birchie family, Sam Lehman in Eureka appreciates the support they've received from their customers all over central Illinois and beyond. Visit them today at lehmangm.com. Leslie Vernick is an experienced counselor, coach, and author. She helps others identify and find healing from their destructive relationships. Her biblical solutions can help you live the kind of life God designed for you. She's going to share her story and her wisdom now. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Leslie. Thanks for inviting me. Well, just for anyone who may be introduced to you for the first time today— I just want to preface our conversation and say that you have skillfully counseled and helped so many people, and you have such a great reputation. So before we dive into your expertise, will you first tell us more about your background and just share how it led to your current work and vision?
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes we don't understand why God allows certain things in our lives, but he never wastes anything. And so... You know, my childhood was not the happiest. My parents were divorced when I was eight. I lived in the city of Chicago, and um, my mom, one day, um, when I was in third grade, she told me to meet her at the Walgreens after school instead of coming home, and she pulled up in a U-Haul with my brother and sister and all of my stuff, and her stuff and everybody's stuff and we left my dad and there was no it was a real surprise to us and there was a lot of conflict between my parents after that i didn't notice so much before but after that of course my dad didn't know where we were and he was shocked by her leaving and all of those kind of things they had a very very contentious relationship my mother left and um we lived in a a one-bedroom apartment in chicago and my mom was an alcoholic and she had a lot of mental health issues and those started coming out after uh, my brother was born and so I think part of her reason for leaving was that my father had had her hospitalized because of that and I didn't know this at the time I only began to learn this when I was an adult was her mom was hospitalized for postpartum depression and had been in the hospital for her entire life. Um, I had always been told my grandmother was dead so it was like all these family secrets started coming out but going back to my eight-year-old self Um, I didn't know any of that, so those are some of my mother's motivations that I came to understand later, but at the time, it was just plain scary. So we lived in this apartment, my mom worked full-time, and then she worked weekends at the Playboy Club, and um, so we didn't see her a whole lot, but when we did see her, she was often stressed out, she was frustrated, she was angry, she was drinking, she took a lot of her frustrations out, primarily on me, Um, I was the oldest, and I think I reminded her the most of my dad. And so um, she was physically abusive, she was verbally abusive, and it was tough, it was rough. And my dad tried to visit us, and we went occasionally, but my mom thwarted every opportunity that she could for us to have a good relationship with him. But eventually, when I was 14 years old, um, my dad had been petitioning the courts for years to get us custody, and this was over 50 years ago, so courts weren't inclined to give children to the dad, and um, he had remarried, was living in the suburbs of Chicago, and my Uh, the judge did give my dad custody of all three of us. And so we had to go live with him. And that was a game changer for me because by then, by 14, 8 to 14, you know, I was um, living the streets of Chicago. I was doing what I wanted to do. I wasn't attending school all that much. Um, I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. So my life was going to have some pretty tough consequences if I hadn't been taken. But at 14, of course, you don't see that. You just see this isn't fair. And why do I have to go live in the suburbs where I can't take a subway train or a bus wherever I want to go or ride my bike? I mean, you had to take a school bus to school. I mean, it was totally different environment and had to go to school. I even had to go to church and that was unusual for me. And so over time, our life began to change. You know, it began to get a routine. We began to eat regularly. We didn't, my brother, sister, and I still joke about Um, In the city of Chicago, people, we lived in an apartment building and people would put their Coke bottles on the back porch and we would go steal all those Coke bottles for two cents each and then we would be able to go get candy to eat because we didn't always have food in our house. So we would do all kinds of creative things to um, survive and we lived right by the lake so it was amazing. We had (laughs) summer, summers were wonderful. We could be at the beach all the time. Nobody supervised us. So, you know, all these years later I struggle with skin cancer because of my stupidity back as a kid but... um, You know, you don't know those lessons then. But anyway, so my dad took us. We began to go to church. Um, I was somewhat rebellious at that time because I didn't understand any of that. But I didn't have a lot of freedom to act out that rebellion. But then God got a hold of my heart. And um, I gave my life to him. And my youth pastor kind of took me under his wing. I became his babysitter. And I became his practice counseling client for seminary. He was going to seminary at the time. And so... um, had an opportunity to share some things and and work out some things in my life. He saw some leadership qualities and asked me to do some leadership things in our youth group and then when I went to college, I knew that I did not want to do anything related to math or science. Those were not my strong suits. I loved reading, I loved helping people, I loved talking. So I didn't know if I was gonna be a teacher. I thought I was gonna maybe be a probation officer. Um, I, you know, For kids like me, I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I knew it was in the helping profession. So all along those ways, God brought different people into my life to mentor me, um, showed me different gifts I had. And when I graduated, college. I went for my master's degree in social work I wanted to be a clinical social worker and do counseling. Didn't want to go for my PhD in psychology because I was afraid that I couldn't write. I laughed at that now, but I told myself a lie that I didn't know how to write well enough to get a PhD. And so that's what I did. And I began working with children. I began working with kids who had been sexually abused as kids. I began to, way back, Laura, way back in the 70s, I was going to churches saying to churches you know because my church did this they would have a like a boys brigade um, sleepover and they would ask you know for volunteers to be in the tents with the boys over the weekend and they would just take volunteers from the audience they would raise their hands and i'd be like no you can't do that there might be a pedophile in the church and they're looking at me like i'm a monster accusing christians of sexually abusing children. And I said, you don't understand. You don't know who's here. And they, even if they claim to be Christian, they can still have problems. You just can't let anybody in a little boy's tent. But of course, nobody was listening at the time until they had to pay lawsuits for not listening. But um, so back then I was a champion for children who were abused because I was abused. Um, but as my career progressed, I found that I didn't have the best skill set or gifts or even interest in working with children. So I began working with adults and adults who had been abused as children, like me. But one of the biggest struggles I found was that the church really didn't have any good answers for those of us about what do you do with this relationship. Like my mother, she was still kind of in my life in some ways, so do I invite her to my wedding even though she might cause a scene? Do I let her have any contact with my children, even though she abused me? I forgave her, but what do you do with a person in your life that God says, honor your father and your mother, forgive, you know, don't keep a record of wrongs, and yet, she's still not a safe person. And we didn't talk about boundaries then, Cloud and Townsend hadn't written their book on boundaries back then, and so I began really studying the scriptures for myself, not only as a counselor, but as a person in a relationship with a destructive person. And how do you have limits, boundaries? Are you allowed to have limits and boundaries? Is that selfish? Is that ungodly? So that began my quest into this work.
0: Goodness, Leslie, and you've had so much healing that's taken place. And I just really appreciate you sharing that journey. I know that you've learned some wise lessons along the way, like you mentioned the boundaries or even learning how to overcome evil with good. So will you give us an overview of some of those lessons? Yeah,
1: you know, the easiest thing to do when you're hurt is to hurt back, you know, hit, hit back. Um, There's that phrase, hurt people, hurt people. So I think there were two big, huge moments in my life where I recognized that I could be just like my mother. And one of them was when I had a child. So I was working at a hospital at the time, uh, just a general hospital in the social work department. And it was just at the time that two big things passed. Roe v. Wade passed. And so our doctors at our hospital were wanting to do abortion counseling and abortions. And they assigned me to do the kind of pre-evaluation of whether these women could get abortions or not, which terrified me because as a Christian, I'm like, I don't believe in abortion. But as a secularly trained social worker, of course, you're not supposed to let your personal values interfere with everybody else's rights. And so it was it was a huge conflict for me. But the other part of my job in this hospital was starting to set up a child abuse education screening for the doctors and nurses because some of the laws had been changed about child abuse. And so really helping them understand what that looked like. So going back to doing all that, as I had my baby, I began to understand much more, Personally, how a mom could lose her temper. You know, I had a child who was very colicky. Um, he cried a lot. He nursed a lot. I was exhausted. I didn't live near anybody, and I didn't have my mother's support, nor would I have asked for it. So it was on um, me and my husband with this baby, and he was just a tough, tough baby. And so I, I could understand how moms could lose their temper with their kid. I remember one time being so exhausted. He was crying and crying and crying. I put him in his bassinet. And I fell sound asleep on my bed. And you know, he was in the same room. I didn't hurt him, but he, he was howling. And I was like unconscious because I was so tired. And my husband came home from work and he goes, What's going on? I said, I just, I just didn't know what else to do. I, I couldn't stay awake. So this was at two years old, we were uh, shopping, and I had finally lost my pregnancy weight. And I was in the dressing room of a little boutique in my area. And he was two and little two year olds do not like shopping. And they do not like being in a stroller for very long. And they do not like being in a dressing room. And so he was letting me know that by throwing a fit on the floor. And it was embarrassing. And I could hear him, I could hear the other people in the store, you know, kind of commenting. And so in a moment of anger, I reached down, grabbed his arm, pulled him to his feet, yanked him to his feet. And I said in a really firm but soft voice, stop it. And he howled with the loudest two-year-old voice that you could have with his little arm dangling from his elbow. Ah, you broke my arm. And I thought I did because his little arm was dislocated. And so I Grabbed him. Of course, everyone in the boutique heard me. Here I am, the hospital social worker taking him to the hospital that I train those workers. Talked to the doctor. I said, I lost it with my kid. I yanked his arm and I broke it. And he said, You didn't break it. He has a weakness in his elbow. It's called nursemaid's elbow. Here, I'll pop it back in. But I'm going to show you how to do this because it's going to happen again. So I didn't break his arm, but it woke me up to the possibility that I could have. And that helped me to really see that I had my own work to do. It wasn't just work, spiritual work of forgiving my mother, but it was healing work of the damage she had caused me as a person.
0: Wow. Thank you for that. I'm sure so many people can relate. And through your own experience navigating how to set appropriate and biblical boundaries, what are some of the ways that you've learned to actually do this?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's really hard for people to even understand what boundaries are. Even after the book came out, as a counselor, a lot of people had confusion. Like, so they would try to set boundaries on other people. They would say, like, "Well, you can't do that to me," or "This is my boundary; you can't do this." And you know, when you set a boundary on another person, they're gonna, if they're destructive, they're gonna say, "You want to bet? Watch me!" You know, you can't stop me; you can't control me. And so, I think it's really important for people first to understand what boundaries are and how important they are to stewardship because that's what boundaries are about. It helps create definitions of two things. One is definitions of identity and the definitions of what you're responsible for and what you're not responsible for. So I live in the state of Arizona and Arizona is a boundary, It has a boundary. We don't have a wall around Arizona, but Arizona is different than Colorado or New Mexico, which are bordering states. And there's not a big wall that says you're entering in Colorado now, but it's this has a sign. So it says, this is a boundary. Here's Arizona and here's Colorado. And the boundary lines define those identities because Arizona's laws are different than Colorado's laws. And Arizona's, you know, you could smoke marijuana and, and, and have marijuana in Colorado. You can't do that in Arizona. You can carry a gun on your uh, hip in Arizona. You, you know, can carry it out in public, but you can't do that in other states that are nearby, like California. So, so when you have a boundary, it helps say, this is me and this isn't me, this is what I stand for, this is who I am, and this isn't who I am. And even two-year-olds, when they start differentiating from their mothers, for example, in child development, you know, a child when they're baby, when they're born, they don't see themselves as separate from their mother, that's why they don't give a rip, so they keep you up all night. They're just crying and that's all they care about is themselves and they see that you're there to take care of them and they don't see you as a separate self. But when they get a little more mature, part of their boundaries is in a two letter word, no, no. Guess what, mom? I don't have to do what you say, I'm separate. I have my own voice. And so boundaries help differentiate identity and then boundaries help differentiate responsibility. So for example, going back to the state example, Arizona's responsible to take care of Arizona. Arizona's not responsible to take care of New Mexico or California's problems. Doesn't mean they might not help or they might not offer to help, but they're not responsible to do that. I think when we think about boundaries that way, it really helps us be good stewards of ourselves. I'm responsible to take care of me. So here's a boundary. Um, My mother smoked. And in my house, my boundary was nobody smokes in the house, right? So if you want to smoke, that's your choice, but you can't smoke in my house because that's my boundary. So you can go outside, you can go in your car, you can, Don't smoke anywhere, but you can't smoke inside my house. And if you don't respect my boundary, then you won't be invited to my house, right? That's the only thing I can control. I can't control, you can't smoke. And I think those are really important because when we're establishing boundaries of what we will do and what we won't do and what we will tolerate and what we won't tolerate, that's the only thing we can control is ourselves.
0: And now a brief message from our sponsor. Sam Lehman Chevrolet Buick in Eureka has been owned and operated by the Burchey family for over 25 years. A lot has changed in the car business since Sam and Stephen's grandfather, Sam Lehman, opened his first Chevrolet dealership over 55 years ago. If you visit their dealership today though, you'll find that not everything has changed. They still operate their dealership like their grandfather did, with honesty and integrity. Sam and Steven understand that you have many different choices in where you buy or service your vehicle. This is why they do everything they can to make the car buying process as easy and hassle-free as possible. They are thankful for the many lasting friendships that began with a simple, welcome to Sam Lehman's. Their customers keep coming back because they experience something different. I've known Sam and Steven and their wives my entire life and I can vouch for their character and integrity, which makes it easy to highly recommend you check them out today. Your car buying process doesn't have to be something you dread. So come see for yourself at Sam Lehman Chevrolet Buick in Eureka. Sam and Steven would love to see you and they appreciate your business. Learn more at their website, laymaneureka.com or visit them on Facebook by searching for Sam Layman Eureka. You can also call them at 309-467-2351. Thanks for your sponsorship. And just to go back to another example you provided, are you comfortable sharing how you did work out that boundary with your wedding?
1: Yeah. So my boundary was that my mother didn't come to my wedding. I didn't even tell her about my wedding. She had such hatred for my father, and she was so unpredictable with alcohol and her. she was bipolar, so she was manic, that there was no way I was going to let one person ruin an entire day for everybody. So no, she didn't come to my wedding. She didn't go to my brother or sister's wedding
0: either. That's how unpredictably scary she could be. But I think that's very helpful for us to understand because that... Sounds like the most loving thing that you could have chosen, but it probably takes a lot of discernment to get there.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think we have a lot of false guilt. You know, I should want to invite my mother to my wedding. I shouldn't feel afraid of her. But the reality was she was a scary person. Not all the time, but you didn't know when. (laughs) And she wasn't well. And so it wasn't safe. And I think this is another aspect of emphasis that I talk to women about is that God values your safety. He values the safety of children. That's why, you know, I was aghast that churches would protect abusers more than they would care about the safety of children. We've heard the scandal in the Catholic Church, but there's just probably as big of a scandal in the evangelical Protestant Church, um, where we cover over the sins of the youth pastor or the pastor or the parent and don't protect the safety of the child, as we should, and even in marriages you know stay together at all costs suffer for Jesus and don't value the safety of the wife who's in danger or the children who are in that home where you have an abuser who's terrifying everybody every day that that has a toll on your health physically mentally emotionally and spiritually
0: and just to elaborate when you're experiencing those thoughts related to false guilt and then in your situation coming from your own painful and destructive relationship with your mother how did you let go of all your negative emotions that were swirling around in your head?
1: Well, there's a couple things. First of all, a lot of your emotions, like, you know, guilty feelings, come from beliefs. And I've said those shoulds. So, so guilt, whenever I feel guilty, I ask myself a question. What should am I violating? All right. So what should is there? What shouldn't is there that I'm, that I'm going against? Is it God's? standard? Or is it my mother's standard? Or is it some other human being standard or even my own standard? Like I should never feel bad or I should never sin. You know, I should never be imperfect. Well, that's a lie (laughs) because the truth is I am. But how many perfectionistic people feel horrible shame and guilt when they mess up? Like somehow I should have known better. I shouldn't have done that. Something's wrong with me that I should be this perfect person and I'm not, but you're not. You're not. And there's a freeing element to humility when you can admit that you aren't perfect. You don't have to know it all, do it all, fix it all, save it all. And there's like a, I'm glad. That's not my responsibility. And there's a freedom in that that doesn't lead to guilt when you live in truth. And that's what Jesus tells us the truth sets us free. So, one way of dealing with the negative emotion is to track the thought behind that emotion, to track the belief behind that emotion. Like I should do something more than I'm really doing, or I'm responsible. It's my fault when it's not my fault, right? But I'm believing it's my fault. So I feel guilty, or I feel ashamed, or I feel the burden of responsibility when it's not mine to carry. But the
0: only reason that the way I can get rid of that feeling is by understanding the lie underneath it. Oof, that's profound to think. Whose should am I violating? That's very helpful. Well, Even though The Emotionally Destructive Relationship was one of your best-selling books, I just want to zero in now on your other best-selling book, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage. So is there anything that makes these relationships unique when compared to an emotionally destructive relationship in general?
1: I think the biggest factor is that there's a covenant relationship. So it's much harder guilt-wise to get out of it. So so when you're in an emotionally destructive relationship with a, a a friend, let's say she's being very controlling over you or shames you a lot or disrespects you in public or private or whatever she does as a girlfriend or lies to you, it's easier to say to yourself, you know what? I'm just not going to have her as a girlfriend anymore. But when they're your husband or your wife um and they're you know, deceitful, or they're controlling chronically, and they don't give you a choice or a voice, or they're demeaning and disrespecting you all the time. It's much harder biblically to feel free to say, I'm done. I'm done with this relationship. Mothers are hard too, but but husbands and wives are, are the hardest to say goodbye to. Hmm.
0: Well, even in your captivating intro, you write, it's easy to find a plethora of good books about how to be a godly wife or what steps to take to build a successful and happy marriage. There aren't many books written on how to wisely deal with a destructive and abusive marriage. So, Leslie, I just think that your resource does exactly that in the most God-honoring way. How can someone differentiate if their marriage is disappointing or if it's crossed the line into becoming destructive? Yeah.
1: You know, every marriage has disappointing moments and sometimes disappointing seasons. Um, And that's part of the maturity of love, because when we fall in love, we fall in love with the ideal version of whoever we're marrying. I remember one time in marriage counseling, I was sitting there and the woman turned to her husband. She goes, you're not the guy I married. And he said, yes, I am. But the guy you dated, he was a fake. (laughs) You know, that when we're dating someone, we're always putting our best foot forward. We're trying to be what they want us to be. And that's unsustainable, right? So then when you get married, you know, your weaker parts and your full self gets known. And part of learning to love is even loving the person that you don't like sometimes. Um, So that's part of maturity. That's part of growing in marriage. If you're going to have a long-term relationship with anybody, I mean, even if we're honest as moms, there's times we don't like our kids, right? But we love them. And we learn to love them even when we don't like them or we're mad at them. So they might be a disappointing kid sometimes or there's seasons of childbearing where you are disappointed with the decisions your children make or the even the person that they're becoming. And hopefully they continue to grow and change. But that's that's normal life stuff. When we cross the line into destructive, I want to talk about patterns of behavior that are destructive that all of us are capable of. Like when I yanked little Ryan up to his feet in the dressing room, that was a destructive, abusive behavior, but it wasn't a pattern. I recognized it. I owned it and I stopped it. All of us are capable of sinful, bad things, adultery, lying, being controlling. And you know, we have issues. We all do. We're broken human beings. We all carry baggage into marriage. We have stuff. That's not necessarily the problem that makes a marriage destructive. It's whether or not when the other partner says, ouch, stop, don't, this isn't right, I don't like this, why are you doing this? When you are asked those questions in your marriage, if you can stop and reflect and look at yourself and recognize the things that you're doing are harmful, it says love does no harm, no intentional harm to, your, to someone that you love. When you're doing intentional harm or even accidental harm, you care about that. And you make every effort not to repeat that. So when we're looking at a destructive relationship, one of the elements is the pattern. It's a destructive pattern that's not been changed. In fact, it's been excused. It's been justified. It's been lied about. It's been uh, spiritualized. I'm the head, so I get to control you. I'm, I'm your master. I, the Bible says I'm your, you know, your head, so I get to decide your life. You don't get to be an adult anymore. And so there's this spiritualization of sin or there's this rationalization of sin or excuse-making of sin and not calling it for what it is. It's a sin and it's destructive. And so therefore, there's no change and it continues to happen and it continues to hurt and harm the individuals in that relationship.
0: And are there any subtle attitudes or behaviors that spouses may overlook or justify, but you would actually label them as emotionally abusive?
1: Yeah, so so any abusive behavior, so any kind of physical abuse, and I would say even things like restraining you or refusing to let you leave, taking your car keys, raging and punching holes in the walls to scare you, those are considered abusive behaviors. Sexual abuse, when you're married, you still have to give consent. You know, it's, it's not a free card to uh, sex on demand when you get married. You're not consenting to that. So if you've been raped, um, sexually abused, made to do things you don't want to do, made to have a threesome, all those awful things that happen in real marriages, even in people who go to church. I won't call them Christian marriages because Christians should not be doing those things. But in people who go to church, it happens. And so if those things are happening to you, it's always destructive. It's abusive. But there's more subtle, like even spiritual abuse, misusing the Bible to gain control over you, like a cult leader would. Um, like a bully would, like a dictator would, Um, that's abusive, controlling you under the guise of, I know what's best for you, or I'm the head of the home, or you have to do what I say. I mean, a parent is also supposed to direct their children, but if you micromanage your child's life, what happens to that child? You thwart their growth. You hurt them. If you never let your child make a decision, even what they wear, what they eat, what they decide to play with, what they want for their birthday party, all those kind of things that we allow our children as they mature to make their own decisions about. If you never allow that and you micromanage a child's life because you're the parent, you are harming that child. So when a husband does that under the guise of I'm the head, he's not being the head. He's being a controlling dictator and that's not healthy and it's destructive to the marriage and it's destructive to the person who he's controlling, because they're not allowed to grow. They're not allowed to be themselves. So controlling behavior, deceitful behavior, chronic deceit erodes trust. And if you don't have trust and safety in a marriage, you can live in a marriage without love. You cannot live in a marriage very well
0: without trust and safety. It will eat you up because you're living in fear all the time. And how do you think God views that type of situation and that type of marriage? He hates it. I'll just be really blunt. We talk
1: about God hating divorce. God doesn't hate all divorce. In fact, he allowed divorce. And some interesting passages. Here's an interesting passage that sometimes I'll read to women who believe that they've been told that they have no rights as a wife. They're just to do their duty as a wife. Um, They have no rights to, you know, complain. They have no rights to expect something from their husband and they have no biblical grounds for divorce. So, so let me just read a passage in Exodus because God, if we think about it, and this is so important, Laura, in, in women learning what God says and who God is, because so often an oppressor, an abuser who's oppressing you will use scripture to do it. Um, and they use scripture to oppress slaves, too, and to keep slaves in place and to keep racism alive. So people can use scripture inappropriately to dominate and control you. So listen to what God says to women in a culture of the Old Testament that did not give women the right to divorce. They were considered more property and objects in that culture. And women who were um, had no rights, they couldn't work, they couldn't support themselves. So here's this patriarchal culture where women were— given by their fathers to their husbands. The husbands took care of them if they were good men. And if they weren't, they just threw them away. And that left a woman in a terrible predicament because she couldn't get a job and she couldn't go back to her father. So now she's begging, she's prostituting herself. God said, I don't want her to do that. So give her a certificate of divorce so that she's free to remarry. But listen to what God says to slave wives. In Exodus 21, he says this, if a man who has married a slave wife, so it's not even a person but a slave wife takes another wife for himself now he's not saying he can't do it but he's gonna do it takes another wife for himself he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food clothing and sexual intimacy she has some rights as a wife if he fails in any of these three obligations she may leave as a free woman without making any payment so God doesn't hate all divorce, but he hates when this most intimate relationship of marriage that he created for our welfare and for our good, and also as a picture of his relationship with the church, he hates when people misuse that relationship. And yeah, God hates it when, when people misuse the, the beautiful relationship he created and turn it into a oppressor-oppressed relationship. God, throughout the Bible especially if you just read the first 10 Psalms, Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, just to give you a picture of how much God hates when oppressors oppress victims. And so when a marriage becomes oppressive and an oppressor-oppressed relationship, that is completely contrary to the marriage relationship that he created. And then when Christian people helpers, Christian pastors or counselors, Tell a woman, well, God says you have to have sex anyway, even if he's your oppressor. What are they saying? You know, God tells us that the sexual relationship is so precious. Save it until you have this safe, trusting relationship. And if you don't have a safe, trusting relationship in marriage, are you supposed to just be a body to use? Is that what God is asking women to do? I don't think so.
0: Something we love to share at The Savvy Sauce is joy. If you want to share joy too, will you take a moment and share this episode or any of your previous favorites with a friend? You can post it on social media and tag us at The Savvy Sauce. You could text it to a friend who could use specific encouragement on one of the topics that we've covered. Or you could email articles to loved ones that you read on thesavvysauce.com under our articles tab. Whichever route you choose, we invite you to share joy along with us. In case someone's listening to all this and this is the first time that maybe they're evaluating their own relationship or they know someone they love who is in a destructive relationship, you've directed in your book something very practical that once they see something, then they can name it or even write it down Because it's so much harder to deny it to yourself when you see it outside of yourself in that way. But then if they are identifying with this, Leslie, what would you encourage them as their next step? Yeah.
1: So once you admit it to yourself, and this is really important because, you know, if your husband is deceitful or lies to you or minimizes all of this, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to lie to yourself. Because you're the one who's going to have to face the truth. It's like if you have a lump in your breast, it's scary. It's scary for sure. But you don't want to lie to yourself and say it's not there. You want to face it. And that is terrifying because it could be really, really bad. And so, yeah, nobody wants to face the reality that their marriage isn't just disappointing, isn't just difficult. It is destructive. And it's destructive to you. It might be destructive to your children because then you don't know what to do and it feels terrifying. And so I think it's really important once you begin to get a glimpse that God is showing you the truth that you get some support because I think that, you know, there's an old Jewish proverb that says sticks in a bundle are not easily broken, but sticks alone can be broken by a child. And community and connection are very important to God, but nowhere more important than when you're in trouble. And so when you're struggling with Waking up to the awareness of being in a destructive marriage or a destructive relationship Get some support and get some education because I think churches have done a terrible job Not meaning to I'm not saying they're intentional about it But they they so have so valued the sanctity of marriage and I do too. I've been married for 45 years this year, so it's not that I take marriage vows lightly. I've been married to the same person for that long, but they've so valued the sanctity of marriage But they valued it over the safety and the sanity of the people in it. And I don't think that's God's priority. I think God's priority is the safety and sanity of people, not the institution of marriage, just like the Sabbath, when the Pharisees, you know, elevated the Sabbath to such a legalistic kind of place that even Jesus, are you kidding, guys? If one of your children or even one of your animals fell into the well, you wouldn't break the Sabbath to save their safety, that you wouldn't help them get out?
0: it makes me wonder with all of the people that you see is it typically this spiritual misinterpretation or misapplication that you see in these destructive marriages or is it more subtle with belittling and repetitive behaviors like that
1: it's both so there can be you know lots of belittling mind games making you feel a little crazy um, so there's kind of a couple red flags that maybe would be helpful for me to share with. So if you're here listening and you're not sure, um, so if you feel controlled a lot, like you can't be yourself and you can't make a decision without being micromanaged out of that decision, um, that's a red flag, whether it's a girlfriend who's doing that or your mother is doing that and you're an adult person or your husband's doing that. If you're being controlled, that's not healthy for you and it's not healthy for an adult-adult relationship. If you chronically feel afraid of someone, you're afraid to speak up. You're afraid to be honest. You know, you're afraid to give honest feedback about something that you don't like. You're afraid to do something that you want to do. If you're afraid for your physical safety that you've been harmed and hurt before, that's a huge red flag that this is not a healthy relationship. But also here's a, here's where you're going with Laura. Laura, you feel confused. Like I thought, I thought he said we could do this, but now he's saying he never said that. Or, I saw him flirting with this girl or looking at this girl, and then when I confront him on it, he says, I'm just paranoid. And am I just paranoid? And so you often feel confused about what really happened, what he really said, what you really said. Um, And if that's often happening in a relationship with someone, that's a big red flag. Another one is you feel disrespected and demeaned and diminished, like you are an object to use, not a person to love. Like you're here to serve me. You're the wife, you're the paycheck, you're the sex object, you're the maid, you're the mother. And I think churches do a pretty bad job at helping people understand that you're more than just a role. They do a lot of teaching on the roles of the wife and the role of the husband, but they don't talk about the personhood of the people and we're not just a role. Um, And so when you're defined as a role and that's all you are, um, that diminishes your personhood. And I think it's important if that's all you are and you're being treated that way, especially in a demeaning, disrespectful way, uh, that's a red flag. So those are some red flags, but these subtle confusion spiritually as well as emotionally, like did he say that or didn't he say that? Here's an example. I worked with a couple where he was chronically late for dinner and it would really irritate her because she'd cook and the kids were hungry and he wanted to eat as a family, but yet he was disrespectful of her efforts to cook a meal on time and children's needs to eat at five o'clock and not 8.30 when he got home. Um, But he wanted everybody to wait for him and he was the most important and his needs should matter more than anybody else's needs, which is a very narcissistic, entitled mindset on the part of her husband. And she thinks... I need to just be submissive and I need to bear all things and you know these are small little things but over time chronically they get to you. And so finally she blew up and he agreed that they would he would call her if he was going to be late and then she could feed the kids. So so that's what she did. And then when she did that he said I never agreed to that. You're crazy. You're con- you know you're trying to control me. I'm the man of this house. It's not up to you to tell me when I can be And she's feeling like she's going nuts because they had this agreement that was a way to resolve the problem, and now this agreement is in her mind. It didn't happen, and this happens over and over and over again, and so it's it can be spiritual abuse coupled with other kinds of messy stuff.
0: Well, Leslie, your book is incredibly helpful and practical, and it lays out a biblical response, so we won't have time to unpack all of it, but could you just give us a quick little taste of some application that is based in scripture of what to do or what the options are if a spouse is finding themselves in a destructive relationship?
1: I would encourage you to stop trying to change him. I'm not saying that in a beginning of a problem in a relationship, if someone's talking to you disrespectfully, you don't speak up. You should. You should speak up and say, hey, I don't like being treated that way. That's not okay with me. You're setting your boundary. I'm not going to have a conversation with you if you talk to me that way. If you want to talk to me, I'll listen, but not when you talk to me that way. So you're offering a way to have a conversation, but not that way. Just like if you want to smoke, you can smoke outside, but I'm not going to let smoke in my face because I don't want to smell secondhand smoke. So that's the first thing that you speak up. But in destructive relationships, it doesn't matter. They don't care what you have to say. What you have to say is not important. And so you have to decide, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? The the hardest thing to do is to stop trying to fix him and trying to change him. If only I say it right, if only I give him the right book, if only he goes to counseling, if only he has the right leader, he'll change. He has already told you, I'm not changing. So the work that you have to do is on you. How do I get healthy? How do I get strong so that I can discern what is best for me and my kids the next steps forward? Now, sometimes it's so dangerous you don't even have time to do that, you just have to flee. But if you're not in that place, It's time for you to do your work so that you can begin. And I call that core strength in the book. How do you build your core strength so that you can be wise and discerning in the next steps forward?
0: Well, there's clearly so much more to learn. Where would you like to invite everyone to find and follow you online?
1: I'm on Instagram, uh, Burnick, I think it is, and I'm on Facebook, uh, Enriching the Relationships That Matter Most is my Facebook page, and uh, they can go to my website, LeslieBernick.com, and there's tons of videos, short little videos on Facebook and on YouTube, little five-minute videos, and the best thing about these videos is they're closed captions, so you can watch them on your phone in front of your husband and not have the sound on, but it'll tell you what I'm saying, and they're really short little ones that will help you understand this whole Thing about spiritual abuse and emotional and uh, mental abuse in a marriage.
0: Wonderful. We will link to all of that in our show notes. And we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or discernment. And so as my final question for you today, what is your savvy sauce? My savvy sauce
1: is that do what Proverbs says, get wisdom above all else because it will protect you from evil people. And God calls you to do your own work in getting that wisdom. So start a study in the book of Proverbs and just make it your goal to be a wise woman with strength and dignity as her clothing, who can smile at the future unafraid.
0: Mm. Leslie, I'm so humbled that you would give us so much of your time today. You're skillfully using areas of your life and you've received comfort and then in turn graciously comforted others so i admire your generosity and i've loved this opportunity to learn from you thank you very much for being my guest today you're so welcome one more thing before you go have you heard the term gospel before it simply means good news and i want to share the best news with you but it starts with the bad news we can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.